uh, Mark chapter 14 and verses 1 to 11. It'll be on the screen or you can follow along in your Bible. Morning again, church. Okay, so Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, that all the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table of a home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why waste? Or why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare it for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Thanks, Dean. So uh, we've been just looking at this little section of Mark, the few days leading up to Jesus' death. We've kind of dived into this part of the Bible in these last few weeks because this is what the guys looked at at Beach Mission. So they shared that with when... Um, when Jake came along and preached for us and Paul and I prepared some talks for, the, for their team while they were here. So we've continued on looking at it and we kind of thought, well, it's a bit funny to talk about this section that's kind of basically part of the Easter story, the prelude to Easter story just after, just after Christmas. It kind of seems a bit funny, but then we thought, nah, look, this gets us really looking at Jesus and focusing on Jesus and that's the perfect thing to do for the start of the year isn't it so let's pray that uh, just pray again that God would be speaking to us and helping us to draw our attention to Jesus at the start of the year our loving father we give you great thanks for your word our Lord we ask that it would work powerfully in our lives and particularly this part as we look at it now that it would speak to us in Jesus name amen so just this week, someone won the $55 million Powerball. Did anyone see that that went off? A few people? Well, they haven't actually found the winner yet, so if you were in Brunswick in Melbourne and you bought a ticket in it, you might want to check that, but I don't think that's probably any of us. Um, it matches, $55 million actually matches the record prize givings ever given in Australia. It's an obscene amount of money, isn't it? Um, I've actually got to admit that a few times that I was parked downtown looking at the poster on the outside of the news agency, um, it set me dreaming. You know the way that it does, oh, what could I do if I had that? What would I buy? Which property would I buy? Where would I go on holidays? You know how it goes. What would you do with that kind of money? Well, here's a more important question. Would it give you what you wanted most? What about this? You might have seen through the news this week. Um, Oprah Winfrey, did she 
got a lifetime achievement award at the Globe and Golden Globe and Glo Golden Globes. That's it, isn't it? I don't really pay much attention to this, but I did pay attention to this part because in her speech, uh, people went nuts over it, and I think they've started to say, or she sounds like she's begun like a presidential campaign with this speech, which is completely possible. You don't know what's going to come out of the US, but part of her speech was to say that a new day is dawning for women. And what she was talking about was the Me Too movement and really in the wake of that, getting up there and declaring that this is what's coming. Now, I find the whole notion of sexual harassment deeply troubling and the Me Too movement from that perspective has been seemingly a pretty positive, positive thing. Uh, just working in high schools, even from adolescence, you see just in boys this wrong attitude that starts to come out in their behaviour even then. But thinking even about that, if, if the whole Me Too movement's only strategy is to gain power, let's put Oprah in president, as make her our president, well, if, it's just, if it just becomes a grab for power, I think it's likely that it'll fall over too. See, power and control are things that our society holds in high esteem. In our community, if, you're, if you've got the money, then you've got the power. Or if you've got in that position of power, then you're, you're in a position where you can live the way that you want it. Even locally at the moment, I think there's a bit of this that we can see. See, I don't know whether you've picked up this around town, around our community, but the conversation seems to be largely on the rental market in Evans Head or, or around the area with the, uh, the road being built out there and high demand for property for the workers to live in. There's this conversation going on and it sounds like power, all the power is being held by the mighty landlord who's just, you know, raking in the cash out of it, cashing in on the seasonal workers. See, all these little examples globally, locally, they all show us a deeper truth about our human nature and that is that we want to be in control. Now, following Jesus is hard. It's a hard slog. Accepting Jesus initially is hard because it means you've got to be real with God and admit that we need him. But continuing to follow Jesus is also hard because you've got to keep listening. You've got to keep listening to God on how best to live while at the same time there's heaps of other voices calling us to follow, calling us to follow that, calling us to live this way. And what I've raised so far, I think, is one of the most prevalent of those other voices that we confront as Christians in Australia in 2018. And it's actually what's focused on in this passage. The whole grab for power and the, the, the belief that money can give us the freedom that we really desire. We are followers of Jesus. And this passage actually makes us ask the question, are we devoted to Jesus? Is our life devoted to him? Or is it getting pulled around by the, the, the promise of power and of freedom? See, from the beginning of the passage, we know that this is nearly the Passover festival, and that's the time when Jesus was crucified. Jesus was close to the end of his life. The destination for Mark in, in his gospel is to show us that Jesus is the king, that he's the one with the ultimate power. But also that, that he's 
in, in, in giving that power and in being in that position, he's actually emptied himself of power. He's the saviour king. He's the one that will sacrifice himself on the cross. See, the Gospel of Mark, it has this structure to us where, where it tells us that Jesus is the king. It proves it through his miracles and things like that. And then Jesus says in, in chapter 8, verse 31... I've put it up there. He says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. See, Jesus knew he was destined to be handed over. He knew that he would be killed. He knew that he would rise. He knew the final destination. He knew that it was the cross that was lying before him. And so it's no surprise that this is what's happening just before Jesus' death. And Mark's actually telling this story to us in contrast. He's using one of those sandwich passages that we've explained sometimes where he'll tell a part of one story and go into another story and then he'll go back to that original story. And, and kind of like a sandwich works with two layers of bread and you've got the meat of it in the middle, now this passage works that way. Verses 1 and 2 uh, give us the context and, and the, the end of it give us the context. But then this story in the middle is, is this story that, that commends to us the devotion that, that is a real follower of Jesus. Right in the middle, Mark tells us about this woman that anoints Jesus in this extravagant way. And just as, about, as it's about to get to the darkest part of the whole of Jesus' life, well, you, it kind of shines like a light of, of what pure devotion to Jesus as a saviour really looks like. So we're actually going to start with uh, verse 3 and that, that story that comes in the middle. So Jesus is here, he's eating in a home where this woman comes and pours perfume on his head. And we know that it's expensive perfume. Now, it's right to think that uh, at least some of the 12 are there with him. It's quite possible. It says that he's in Bethany. And if you know a bit of the Bible and remember, Bethany's the place where his friends Lazarus, Mary and Martha live. So it's quite likely that he's actually in their home. And it's quite likely that this is something that's happening after Lazarus has been raised from the dead again. But his 12 are probably with him. And, and this woman comes and, and anoints him with oil. And it tells us some of those with him become indignant. They think that what's happened is just this complete waste. They're annoyed with him. They're also annoyed at the woman. And they say, this is so wasteful. And yet, right at this point, Jesus explains that she's doing a good thing. Jesus explains that what she's done is actually to anoint his body for his burial before he dies like we've already said Jesus knew what was facing him he's been explaining it before he set out for Jerusalem see Mark in writing this wants us to, um, to see this extravagant act as the right understanding of what's coming up for Jesus it's the right response to Jesus this jar of perfume it says there was worth a whole year's wages the argument put forward even makes a bit of sense. Well, couldn't you have used that for, you know, helping the sick or helping the poor? 
But it's like they've forgotten who Jesus was. Was Jesus ever short of the resources to help the sick or the poor? He could just say, be healed, and they were healed. He prayed and there'd be food for them to eat. He doesn't need a year's wages to feed them. He's already fed thousands and healed the sick. He's the saviour king. And I think this lets us in and reminds us of something, that God's actually outside of the commodities and the economies that we live by. He's outside of those things. He doesn't run a budget. He's not worried about going into debt or financing. It's, it's, just, it's not in the way that God operates. It's a foreign thing. God's outside of the commodities and economies of this world. And so God's not wasteful. In fact, we've got to realise that God is extravagant. Extravagant in the way that he loves us. See, think about it. Our God would in every way be righteous, be doing the right thing to bring on us what we deserve for our sin. But what's he do instead? He puts forward his only son. He gives that. God pays the price that in every way is priceless. The jar of oil doesn't even meter on a scale compared to the gift of God in sending Jesus for us. It's like, you know, imagine, I reckon a pretty cool thing to get would be a brand new car. Imagine just someone gave you a brand new car. And not only that, in the glove box they said, have a look here, and there's a, here's a BP card, and that, that'll never run out. Just every time you need to fill it up, take it in there, and it's paid for. That'd be a pretty cool thing, hey. Imagine if I just like, scribbled a, a, I'm not asking for that from anyone, but I'm just saying, it'd be pretty cool, just a, just a hypothetical here, but imagine that you thought, oh, that was so cool, and you like think, oh, gee, that was, I'm really grateful for that, and next time you're at the supermarket, you're like, oh, that was so good that, you know, um, Sally did that, Johnny, I'm just trying to think of a random name, that um, Jimmy did that for me, oh, how about a I bet, he, I bet he needs a couple of litres of milk. I'll buy him some, a couple of litres of milk and drop it off to him. See, it doesn't really meter in comparison, does it? That's a kind of a silly example because to think about it, to think well, they're all worried about this, you know, jar of perfume that's worth a year's wages, but this is being put on the Son of God who's been given for us, who's giving his whole life for us to give us life with God again. See, the gift of God... Uh, the gift of Jesus is the expression of God's grace to us. What does Jesus really ask of us in return? Does he ask for a, a jar of expensive oil? Does he ask for us to put aside one year of our wages? Does he ask for every last part of every last thing we own to be parted and given away? Do you realise that what we've been given in Jesus makes a $55 million Powerball win look pathetic. You've already got that. In, in Romans, this is one of the most helpful, helpful things uh, to explain to us and to remind us of exactly what it does look like for us to live in response to such grace shown to us. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
Now, the right response to God's mercy is to live for him instead of ourselves. And it makes sense, doesn't it? That he's given his whole life for us. Well, is our life given back to him in devotion to him? I was preparing for this and I was looking at um, other Bible translations and the message translation of this same passage actually puts it in such clear language that I can't explain it any better. So I'm just going to reread Romans 12 to us in the message translation. This is how how it's written. So here's what I want you to do. With God helping you, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, your going to work and your walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, well, God brings out the best in you and develops well-formed maturity in you. So that's what you see in this woman, isn't it? She's, she's, you know, placed her best before God as an offering, her whole life before God as an offering. This is what it challenges us to do. Everything that we do to be given over to God And this is a privilege. This is a privilege that we have. This is true freedom. This is the upside-down nature of the Christian life that we live. See, even when we give up of ourselves, we actually gain. Every sacrifice we make as a Christian, it only serves to benefit us. Reflecting on 2017, on the year that's gone past, for you, what won out more? Was it the opportunity to give your life to live it for Jesus? Or was it being pulled in by thinking that you're going to, you know, I just need to get that better job and life will be a little bit easier or if I get that better thing or whatever? Because the challenge here is to be like that woman, to rest in the security of the relationship that we have in Jesus and let the rest of our life, Come out of that. Rest in the gospel and the freedom that that brings and living every part of our life as an expression of that freedom. See, this woman's devotion is beautiful and it's extravagant. God's grace is beautiful and extravagant. And so is our life responding to it? Well, looking at this woman's act, we should be left with this feeling and understanding that Jesus is worthy of such a costly response. Yet, like in our day though, there was plenty of other people in this story and the people around here, they're not reacting the same way. They're not responding the same way. Like I said, it's sandwiched around this story. We see in verses 1 and 2 that the chief priests are there and they're plotting and scheming how they're going to capture Jesus. These are the guys that had the word of God from day dot. They've been trained in it, and here they are with God's Messiah working out how they're going to kill him. And then there's verses 10 to 11. You see Judas, one of his own, meeting up with these same guys to help in their capture of Jesus. 
See, it goes from this beautiful act of devotion to this total act of betrayal. These men, they were threatened by Jesus. They called him blasphemous, but they were worried that they were losing their grip on the power that they had. They disregarded his miracles. They disregarded his ministry, and they had their hearts set on getting rid of him. And Mark shows the contrasting response to Jesus. They don't see the value or the worth that the woman saw. They're blind to him. What causes their blindness? Well, I think for religious leaders, the the picture that we get from the Bible is that they were legalists. They just wanted to follow the letter of the law. Legalism is when a relationship with God, it's, it's become secondary to just adherence to doing the right things. They failed to have the right heart, the right openness to God and his power and his work. See, instead they sought after their own power and money and might and control. And they were thought they were righteous on their own in their good works and their good deeds. And if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, that we've seen that play out as Jesus goes into the temple and, and clears them out of there and says, the, you know, it's like this fig tree that's not bearing any fruit. They're not bearing any fruit. And so that's the religious leaders. But I reckon Judas is even more surprising. Judas really should confront each of us. Judas was a disciple. He'd given up everything to follow Jesus. He'd wandered around. He hadn't just given up like uh, 10 days like the beach mission crew had to come up here. He hadn't just given up a bit of his, you know, his pay packet to put in the offertory at church. He'd literally packed up shop and walked around with Jesus through the hot, smelly parts of Galilee for, I don't know, three and a half years or whatever it was. And yet, even after all that, he's completely blind to who Jesus is. For Judas, his blindness seems to be his greed. From the other Gospels, we learn that he was the guy that was in charge of the money. He had the, the money bag with him. And we even know that he would you know, come and take from that money bag for himself. And in the end, when he sees the opportunity for a little bit of financial gain... For 30 pieces of silver, his devotion to Jesus just was gone. It collapses. He'd seen the miracles. He'd heard Jesus teach. He'd literally spent three years with the Son of God. And yet, he was still blind. This should confront us. Even as we know Jesus and and know him well, do we become blind or blinded to who he truly is? See, we've got this great church community, don't we? We've got our gospel communities through the week. We've got brothers and sisters that, that help us to follow him. But in what ways might we still be blind? See, I think we can get blinded by, by our own sense of self-importance. Or maybe our own agendas, the way that we think sh- things should be done around the place we can be blinded by our visions for our lives we can get caught up in just living the you know for the Australian dream whatever whatever that looks like and we can get caught up in where we see ourselves going in our lives 
or I think like the majority of our society, we can just get blinded by wealth and the freedom and power that we think that it's going to bring us. So you've probably heard before that if you live in Australia, you're basically in the top 10% of the world's richest people. Still, given, uh, I think it's about 13% of Australia live in poverty, so that means that they, uh, even though they live on about $400 a week, it means that they can't actually live properly in Australia because it costs so much to live here. But all that aside, basically, 90% of our population is in the top 10% of the richest people in the world. You knew that fact? I heard a more shocking fact lately, that we're actually, if we're in that part of our society, we're actually the richest people in all of human history. What we have access to, what we can do for ourselves with our money. How much, just how much does that blind us to the need that we have for Jesus? That's what makes it hard to talk to people about Jesus to our Christian friends because they don't they don't see the need that they have. They convinced that they can just work a bit harder, raise a bit more money, and then they'll get that thing that they want or that situation that they'll buy it for themselves. We think that we can take care of our own needs. Our politicians campaign on this. Who's gonna who's gonna do it the best for us? Give us that security and, and that prosperity. And do you know what? People are let down by this all of the time. Like, all of the time. Whenever your hope is in this, you will be let down in this. Our wealth and our love of it blinds us to really knowing God. So long as our hope is in our wealth, we won't quite understand why we need a saviour. And that was the case for Judas. Judas whole year's wages and someone's complaining about it but then he'll give Jesus up for 30 bits of silver the contrast presented by Mark between this extravagant and almost wasteful act of love and devotion with this hard and cold and bitter rejection of Jesus it really should confront us does our love and devotion to our saviour spring from a right understanding of Jesus of his love and his grace? Or do we have that legalistic point of view? It's a warning because we see the tragic result of such a wrong response to Jesus. Later in the Last Supper, in in, uh, Mark 14 here, verse 20, when Jesus calls Judas out that he's going to be the one that betrays him, Jesus actually says of Judas that it would be better if he had not been born. We should heed Jesus' words that the person who turns their back on Jesus would be better off never having been born. It really makes us ask, where are we at with Jesus? How are we receiving him in our lives? And be praying that by God's grace, we would be living with the devotion of that woman. See, I want to say, own it. Own the gospel of grace. Own the grace that's been given to you by Jesus grow in it fertilize it you know let it let it come out of every part of us show it in how we serve if you actually need to go and grab that safe to serve sheet because you think well actually I'm you know not got an alabaster jar written down on that page then maybe that's what you need to do 
Or maybe it's the people around you in your family or around you in your life. This gospel of grace needs to be something that we give away in every conversation, every smile, every kind action. Every time we demonstrate patience to someone or show that sisterly or brother or brotherly love, whether it gets put on display here or in our community groups or just wherever we are. See, there's two human responses here to, how, to Jesus, but ultimately there's only just one way, only one way that leads to life. There's only one way for Jesus, only one way for him to achieve God's purpose. It was painful. It was a horrible way. It was the way of the cross, but Jesus was obedient to it. So of the two ways that confront us, We can be like the woman who radically devoted herself to Jesus and we realise that it's costly and we realise that it abandons the kind of worldly common sense but we also realise that it recognises true worth. Or we can be like Judas and the teachers of the law, consumed by power, consumed by the love of money and just blinded from the truth. God doesn't want that for us. God wants us to come to him. God wants us to refuge in him. And God wants out of that devotion for us to be sharing that with our community around us. So let's pray, pray hard to that end. Our loving Father, this is a confronting part of your word. But Lord, we thank you that in it we find a path we'll find a path of how we live in response to what you've done for us. Lord, we thank you for this woman and the the gratitude and devotion that she shows and and models for us and I ask that it would truly be a model for us and how we live. And Lord, we see the folly of the others around, of the teachers and of Judas And Lord, we ask for your protection. Lord, we ask that you would guide our hearts so that they're not hard, but that you would give us faith and give us trust. And Lord, give us hearts that are set on you and listening to you and following you. And Lord, we acknowledge that that happens by your grace, your grace working out in our lives. And our effort is put to one side, and Lord, that you guide us to that. So Lord, we just ask that you'd make us humble and give us the heart that recognises true worth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.